0: Hi everyone, this is Ann Doherty, and you're listening to Current, of Looms podcast.
1: We hope that everyone out there is staying healthy and
0: safe. On this week's podcast, I'm excited to be joined by a few of our loom team members, Dr. Courtney Henderson, a loom senior managing consultant, and Allison Mushoshi, a research analyst at a Welcome to the podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Excited to have you and really thrilled to have you both here today. As many of you know, COVID-19 has proven to be a tipping point of sorts, highlighting so many inequalities, and specifically who is most heavily impacted by the virus and all the underlying conditions and histories that led people to different levels of access to healthcare or different levels of vulnerability within their own communities. And although this um, specific pandemic is like none other that we've seen. Disasters and uh, disruptions of this magnitude are in no way new to vulnerable communities. It doesn't take much to look back into our history and quickly be able to call upon a number of different things that have occurred that have particularly impacted people of color and vulnerable communities throughout the United States, such as natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, which had an unprecedented toll on human life, but in particular impacted and displaced people of color and black communities in particular after the hurricanes hit. And similarly, the Chicago heat wave in 1995 killed more than 700 residents, primarily impacting the poor and the elderly. And even in our most recent history, just looking at the past couple of years, the California wildfires that spread across the state were discovered to have had a disproportionately high impact on those individuals in rural areas, those living in low income neighborhoods and immigrant communities. And so when we think about this topic of environmental justice, what we're really talking about are questions like who is being impacted most by our energy investments? and the impacts of climate change that result from those investments, and how might we right those wrongs? So with me today are Allison and Courtney, who I've introduced earlier to answer those questions for you. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. So Courtney, I, I'm gonna start with you. Um, so my first question for you today is, you know, stepping back and thinking about COVID-19 how is this brought to the foreground issues affecting environmental justice in our communities? Or perhaps another way of looking at it, how has COVID-19 brought forward ways of thinking about what a healthy community is?
2: Those are great questions, Anne. COVID-19 has really highlighted a lot of different systemic issues, what we tend to call in public health upstream determinants of health. So often our programs and solutions are really designed to address an immediate need or a crisis Unfortunately, health disparities and environmental disparities exist and they often go hand in hand. As we're all continuing to deal with the overwhelming impacts of COVID-19, many of the communities and populations that have been particularly hard hit are low-income and communities of color, and those are often the places that have suffered disproportionately from environmental issues as well, such as a high air pollution burden. There's so much that we don't yet know about COVID-19 from a public health perspective, but studies are showing us a link between higher pollution levels and an increased risk of illness and death from COVID-19. Your second question about how do we actually think about what a healthy community is? How do we define it? And then how do we actually work to achieve that? I think I wanna start off by saying something that seems pretty obvious, um, that everyone deserves to live in a healthy community. And health isn't simply the absence of disease or of illness. The World Health Organization talks about it as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. There are so many different social, community, and environmental factors that impact our ability to be healthy, both as individuals and as communities. And factors like income or race really shouldn't be the key determinants of the health or quality of life that a person has. Um, That said, historically and currently, these disparities exist, and we need to be working harder to change those. I know we're going to talk about that shortly.
0: That's great, and I'm really glad that you brought forward the World Health Organization's vision of what health is, because I think, as you pointed out, we often think about it as the absence of disease, but what you've described is this beautiful picture of a a full life, a complete life. Uh, And so, so, you know, following up on some of the thinking that you brought forward, how do you think about environmental justice from a public health perspective specifically? And we often at Illum think about it from a energy standpoint, but when you think about it from public health, how does environmental justice come forward? Sure.
2: So many different factors contribute to increased health risks, and ultimately, those things affect a community's ability to respond to and to be able to cope with environmental issues. And those can be things as broad as climate change or pollution, things like particulate air matter, smog, or proximity to polluting industrial facilities. I think that within public health, to talk about environmental justice, we need to first talk about environmental racism. Any environmental policy or practice that disadvantages communities or groups based on race or color, whether that's intentional or unintentional, like I said, oftentimes the communities most impacted by the negative impacts of these environmental policies are low-income communities or communities of color. It can be due to a lot of those upstream determinants of health that we were just talking about, things like structural racism or housing policies, resource allocation, and many more. If we pivot to talking about environmental justice, it's worth just taking a moment to sort of look at it historically within the public health context. So the concept of environmental justice has its roots coming out of the early 1980s. And it's often attributed to a PCB landfill that was being placed in a largely African-American community in rural North Carolina. And I think a lot of us probably know PCBs are highly toxic compounds. They tend to cause tremendous health risks, including developmental neurological problems. That landfill sparked a lot of protests and a lot of different studies examining where hazardous waste sites were being placed. And frequently that was in communities of color. That led to a lot of action. In 1994, President Clinton signed an executive order mandating that all federal agencies incorporate environmental justice in their programs. And today, the American Public Health Association defines environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policy. As a society, I don't think we're fully where we need to be on this front. But there are a lot of good examples of where really good work is being done in this regard.
0: Great. Thank you, Courtney. So Allison, Courtney uh, just outlined some of the concepts around environmental justice from a public health perspective. If we were to think about it from a sociological perspective, where does the term environmental injustice originate? And what are the historical contexts that surround the development of that term?
1: So looking back into history, um, the term environmental injustice comes from work that was produced by Dr. Robert Bullard as well as Dr. Benjamin Charvis. And they're both sociologists um, who contributed a lot to the early history historical research um, that has brought us the terms that we use today. Other related terms that are really important to consider as well include environmental equity, environmental sustainability, sustainable sustainable environmentalism and environmental health. So to kind of break it down into more manageable pieces, some parts of this work are focused on defining the problem. So I would think of that as environmental injustice or environmental racism and those kinds of terms, while others are more related to defining and creating solutions to those problems. So that's where you would have the flip side, environmental justice compared to injustice environmental equity versus environmental racism. So that's where some of the early work has started Um, based on research that was done in Texas um, and other parts of the country related to proximity of toxic waste fighting to communities of color, to lower income communities. And what that early research demonstrated was that overall there was unequal exposure to toxins degradation, um, proximity to land designated for hazardous waste use. So there was unequal protection under law, unequal regulation, um, and finally, unequal protection through enforcement. And so all of those things together, when we think about it from a historical perspective, while today the research might look more correlational, when we think about the antecedents to the conditions that we've seen in the past. A lot of that explains what we see even happening today. It's
0: um, such a great uh, perspective, Allison, as you're thinking about how we frame the topic and whether or not we are defining the problem or defining the solution. Uh, As we think forward and think about the development of, you know, solution-oriented thinking or even a problem definition how do we think about our research and ways that we can better understand what's happening today as it relates to environmental injustice?
1: So I think one of the important things is going back to the definition. um, Research is very much at the core of these definitions, right? It's being able to quantify the incidence of disproportionate exposure to environmental hazards and toxins. So being sure that we're doing research that quantifies that problem, that makes sure that we're not ignoring or overlooking the need to look at demographics in in the work that we do and elevating that, and also making sure that we're looking at things more than just you know, energy benefits, but also looking at the human cost or the true cost of products in terms of how they impact communities and the people that live there to make sure that it's not just a one-dimensional solution, but that it includes the entire holistic community and the environment, um, as well as, you know, non-human users of that environmental space as well. I love how
0: broadly you've built that out for us in terms of telescoping out to think about costs as associated with um, both human cost, human toll, and also um, non-human uh, costs and tolls as well. Because I do think we often, to your point, Allison, think about energy uh, costs and energy benefits, and rarely think about the extended human costs and human benefits. Now, in our program world, uh, we do see a lot of engagement Uh, by um, and with community-based organizations that often are asked to be the folks on the ground delivering um, services and solutions specifically around uh, a lot of the issues that we're talking about today, be it um, environmental injustice or environmental racism. Uh, What kind of work, Allison, are you seeing being done to to address environmental injustice by community-based organizations? And is there anything that you're seeing that provides a bit of hope in the horizon as we think about how to tackle these challenges?
1: As bleak as the problem seems now, um, there is a ray of hope on the horizon. We're starting to see a lot of individual organizations taking ownership of this problem, if you will. Um, And not only that, but expanding that to make sure that communities that are affected and impacted are decision makers at the table before any work is implemented. Um, And so what does that mean? That basically means shifting away from being inclusive later on in the process and starting that much earlier when the work is just being accepted. Um, some great work that's being done in New York City and Washington, D.C. is by We Act. Um, you can find them online. Um, they're an environmental justice organization. And what they do is they build community engagement and involvement through education and advocacy work, where they get the community involved from the ground up. They work on informing the communities that are typically affected and ignored when it comes to policy when it comes to um, some of the important decisions that are made from a city level, local level. And they're building that coalition by helping to empower the communities through uh, participation and by equipping them with the evidence-based research and work that they need to do to advocate um, for the changes that are actually more integrative of their communities and their community values within the design of of programs that will be implemented in the cities. So this kind of work is not just being done in New York City and Washington, D.C., but we see this kind of work being done throughout the country where um, utilities, other corporate organizations are bringing community-based organizations to the table earlier on the stage where they can really have an impact in designing for themselves and for the community.
0: So glad you brought that distinction forward because in many ways you took my question and flipped it. Whereas I was thinking from the perspective of engaging community-based organizations in an existing program design, what you're really saying is, no, this is a a co-created solution. This is a solution that communities lead. And I think it's so important to really underscore that so it's not lost. And it actually harkens back to the webinar we had last week where we were talking about uh, tribal resilience with respect to energy infrastructure development and energy solutions on um, reservations. And that theme really came forward at front and center in that conversation, which was essentially engage us, work with us from the beginning, don't come to us with a solution or with an investment downstream of our interests. And uh, I really just, was, yeah, I'm so grateful you brought that forward.
1: Courtney, can you tell us about some
0: utilities or program administrators that are working on environmental justice or health equity issues?
2: That's a great question, Anne, and I have a couple of different ones that I'd love to point out today. At Allume, we're currently supporting NYSERDA in how they evaluate whether their programs and funding are reaching disadvantaged communities. This is really in response to the Climate Leadership and Protection Act, which states that state authorities should strive for a goal of disadvantaged communities receiving a minimum of 35% of the overall benefits of their spending. We've been working with NYSERDA to think through that goal and how they're doing against that goal. We really started by helping them define disadvantaged communities, taking into account a lot of different things. Areas burdened by cumulative environmental pollution, areas with high concentrations of low-income households or high unemployment, and areas that are very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. We're also helping NYSERDA arrive at some key metrics and how to best determine the flow of those benefits, whether those are direct or indirect benefits. As another example, just a few weeks ago in New Jersey, Senator Troy Singleton introduced legislation that would establish the Office of Clean Energy Equity. Senate Bill 2484 seeks to deliver onsite solar or community solar to over 250,000 low-income households, providing over 400 megawatts of energy storage via a community energy resilience hub. And they're really prioritizing the deployment of that energy to local residents during natural disasters, working on developing outreach materials in multiple language to best meet the needs of communities there, and appointing a community liaison liaison and advisory board. And we see that quite a lot within the public health context as well when we're working in communities, forming community advisory boards or CABs to work collaboratively and have solutions come from the, the community itself as well. Moving to the West Coast, The Seattle Public Utilities through the Environmental Justice and Service Equity Division is partnering with other departments in the city of Seattle to carry out its race and social justice initiatives. And that's really aimed at delivering inclusive and equitable service to customers across the entire city. Recognizing that not all utility customers have access to government services in the same manner, the division is really leaning on environmental justice as a core tenant of equity. So to do the work, the division has identified three important strategies, embedding race and social justice and service equity policies and practices across the utility, modeling and advocating for inclusive community engagement within the utility and in partnership with their communities, and aligning their team efforts with the city, county, and community efforts that are happening.
0: you Allison Courtney touched on a number of different tactics that certain regions have used to really engage communities if you were to have a conversation with a utility or a program administrator and talk to them about efforts to be inclusive and to engage stakeholders to fit you know the wide variety of needs that a diverse community might have what would you ask them to do, what would you recommend, if you will, to make sure that they are continuing to serve the needs of the communities that they're hoping to support with their efforts?
1: Um, That's a great question. And I think, you know, as Courtney touched on some of the work, and as we talked about a little bit earlier, it's really taking the work that needs to be done and believing that we're co-creators with the community, right? So that means starting at the very beginning. Um, but even before that, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of acknowledging um, previous harm that has been done to various communities, and not just saying that we're going to start going forward doing this good work, uh, but being able to take responsibility for, for some of that previous harm, and and not just taking that responsibility symbolically, but but creating tangible ways that we're going to collect that. Um, and so that means in the work going forward, it's not just about seeing the success of that program into the future, but also seeing how that is is creating the value that communities have not historically felt. And so that people can start to feel that they are respected, that they are welcomed and included from the forefront and, and that the new policies, the new effects are, um, are going to benefit everybody holistically. And I think sometimes the, the problem is that we want to get started in doing the good work and we're really excited to get into that place without necessarily um, accepting accountability for previous wrongs. Um, and that goes a long way, really. Acknowledging that goes a long way for making people feel that they can be part of that co-creation of the solution. Um, And from a research perspective, Alum has been very much involved in doing some of the more difficult kinds of research that it takes to get communities into the table. A lot of times you have to spend a lot of time recruiting and getting people to feel comfortable even into that space to have that discussion first and foremost. Alum has been able to do that through some of the multicultural research and ethnographic research that we do for various of our utility clients and partners. And we've, we've noticed firsthand how difficult it is to convince people like, no, we, we really do care to hear your opinion this time around. Um, but once people do get to the table, we get a plethora of creative ideas and, and solutions based thinking that had those voices not been at the table, we wouldn't have thought to, to create and implement. So I think there's a lot that can be done um, from the utility perspective. And it's really exciting to see that certain of our partners are starting to do that work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, it is exciting to be in a space as a company to support that work and to, to work in, you know hard at trying to bring people to the table. And I do want to also just... Again, underscore uh, something that you said, Allison, that I thought was also very powerful, which is, you know, in order to begin, you have to do the reparative work, if you will, uh, of really acknowledging and owning those histories that are, you know, that have long memories and communities and, you um, as we know, utilities and other uh, power generation um, entities uh, often have had in the past, and still do, very dirty practices with respect to the environment and the impact that those have on the communities. And then also, um, for example, where where plants are sited. And so acknowledging that is really important. And and again, kind of hearkening back to the webinar we just had to use um, or quote rather, um, Dr. Lynn Nefers. Uh, I think really poignant statement with that as well which is to say you know you have to acknowledge your the history that you are bringing with you when you show up to engage with communities and the history that you represent even if it's not your history in particular as an individual or as an organization or a member of an organization. Maybe you weren't around during the time of um, let's say a large um, pollution event if you will but you represent that group, and it's important that you re, you know you reconcile that or you deal with that in engagement. So I really appreciate you bringing that forward, um, Courtney. Is we uh, think about you know what needs to be what needs to take place to avoid practices like you know, focusing all of our sighting in vulnerable communities or communities that don't have, say, the political um, capital to prevent that from happening, or preventing rollbacks in clean air and energy um, as it relates to power plants. Um, how How do we think about avoiding those kinds of things and then also moving forward with better design for communities in the future? It's such
2: a great question. And I think it really goes to some of the things we're already talking about. In its most fundamental form, I think it starts with being more inclusive and creating more inclusive stakeholder groups overall. We need to ensure that the appropriate voices are influencing our program development and our policy. And we simply can't design for communities if the voices of those living in those communities are left out. And I think that we have to recognize it's not about saying we have all the solutions. It's about opening that dialogue and making space for other voices who know their communities the best and who may have those solutions already. I think we also need to be looking to examples of where good work is happening and really leverage those and build off of those as well as examples of things that we can do in other facets of our work. So some of the examples that we've discussed earlier Um, And then within public health, there's something called health in all policies. It's a really collaborative approach that integrates and articulates health considerations into policymaking across a variety of sectors to improve the health of all communities and people. I think if our listeners are interested today in fostering that type of inclusivity and collaborative type of work with communities, this is a really good place to start. There are a lot of resources out there from the CDC and others on the health in all policies approach and how to build those approaches with communities in a collaborative fashion. And within the energy industry, we can really we can look to these other sectors like public health that have been working very hard in these areas for many many years, take those lessons learned and apply them to our work where applicable and
0: relevant. Right, that's such a great perspective and it, you know, we often tend to look within our our industries for Examples and for, you know it's important to remember that there are so many adjacent services and um, areas of areas of work that are really great models for thinking about how we do what we do better um, and making sure that we are being inclusive. Um,
1: Allison, is there anything you'd like to add to what Courtney said before we close? Um, I think you said it well. We we have to bring everybody to the table, and I think it hinges on being really intentional about creating that space and to your point earlier
0: allison doing it from the start you know we tend to like create design a solution and then try to get buy-in after it's already been built you know and it's like no let's we're we're co-creating solutions from day one right so to make no presumptions. yeah well i am so grateful that you both took this time in your afternoon to have this conversation. So thank you, Allison and Courtney, for being on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Yeah, great. And I do I do feel that there are conversations like these that not only inspire our listeners to think about new solutions. But to really think about how we're engaging in the work that we're engaging in and the ways in which um, we're investing our time and our energies and and what we're asking of those who we want to co-create with. Um, So, again, really appreciate your time and um, we look forward to continuing this conversation, hopefully, over the next um, few weeks as we dig into some of these issues a little more. Um, For those of you listening, this episode of Current was created by Loom's production team. Music's by Blue Dot Sessions. And um, be well, be safe, and we will see you next time.